Welcome to Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering. Around the table on Capital Conversations, you'll hear from the policy team of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, as well as featured guests from outside our D.C. office. Our conversations cover the policy debates and news shaping our world as we aim to connect our Christian theological motivations to political engagement in Washington. All right, we are back around the table here. We have Chelsea, Stephen, and Travis. The whole ERLC policy team is back after a summer of travels, August recess. Uh, we are in September. It's after Labor Day. Congress is back. Welcome traffic back, is back around. <laughs> traffic is back. That's right. Uh, but I'm glad to be here with you all after we uh, took some time off on Capital Conversations to do a few interesting episodes uh, with leaders shaping the world of Christian political engagement. Uh, so we interviewed uh, Dr. Moore, Justin Gibney, and Jennifer Marshall Patterson, uh, as well as our summer interns. But uh, I'm excited to have our ERLC policy team back for some policy conversations here on Capital Conversations. It's no secret that the American church is facing an abuse crisis. Too often, abuse survivors haven't found the protection and care they need from the church. On October 3rd through 5th, join the free simulcast of the Caring Well Conference, an important event that will equip you to confront abuse and defend the vulnerable in your church and community. Go to live.erlc.com to learn more. That's live, L-I-V-E dot E-R-L-C dot com to learn more. So before we jump into uh, looking ahead at the kind of policies uh, and issues and debates that we are expecting to have this fall, uh, I think it'd be interesting just to hear about how your summers were. Uh, so Chelsea, we'll start with you. Did you? Uh, wh- what were you up to this summer? Did you have a good time? It was great. Uh, hot summer in D.C. Uh, but today is actually um, my two-year wedding anniversary. Happy anniversary. So, Congratulations woo! to you thank and Michael. You. Thank you. Thank you. So we were down in the Shenandoah Valley this weekend celebrating and did some travel to Florida to visit some family. So some small trips here and there. But really good summer. Uh, got to read a lot of books, which is always a highlight of my summer. So really good, good summer. Very good. Stephen, I know summertime was a nice uh, reprieve. Right, for I, you. I got a chance not to read anything uh, this <laughs> summer, which was great. Still chipping away at your uh, syllabus. No syllabi controlling my destiny, at least for a few weeks. Yeah. Great time with the family, uh, not traveling, flying in and out every week. So it was really good to be present with the boys and my bride. Um, we got a little vacation in. Um, Took a trip to to London and Paris. Really, our four year old Jude really likes these kind of destination sites and stuff. So that I really want to see the Eiffel Tower. We finally get there, get to the Eiffel Tower, take this boat late at night, get to the Eiffel Tower. It's all lit up and glistening. Jude, there it is. He couldn't care less about the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> uh, awesome. He's more interested in the the boat, this little leaky boat that we're we're, we're riding on, and this glistening tower in front of him. He's like, yeah, 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 whatever. So we had a great time though, um, and again, it was just good to be with the be with the kids and be with be with Sunny and uh, to really just be present. And so, fun summer felt a little short. Back yeah. back on the grind now. Yeah, mm-hmm. as it does. Travis, what about you? You guys had a had a really uh, cool trip this summer. Tell us about it. We we did. We were able to fulfill one of Katie's lifelong dreams. Her 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 family on her mom's side is Swiss, and so we were able to go to Switzerland. We met a bunch of her cousins and. 
and family members that she's heard stories about, you know, for years, uh, but she she had never been. And you know, we got to also go to the Swiss Alps. <laughs> yeah, you got to be in Switzerland. Yeah, there's it's a pretty uh, cool place to have yeah, some family heritage. There's worse places in the world to visit. It was a it was a great time. And your girls, your girls had a good time. The girls loved it. I mean, you know, just like Steve was saying, I mean, the, the stuff that they remember will probably be irritating because you could do that stuff here, you know. Um, right. There's chocolate here. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, the girls the girls had a great time. They're, they're good little travelers. We all basically ate our weight in chocolate. Um, it, was a good, it was a good trip. Well, speaking of eating your way in native foods, uh, I spent some time in Texas uh, this summer. We we got to take uh, Lincoln uh, back on his first trips to the Republic, both uh, to celebrate Father's Day uh, with with both sides of our families by taking Lincoln to his first Major League Baseball game in Minute Maid Park. Nice, uh, that was wonderful. Um, and and then we did another trip to Austin, some long weekends here and there. Um, but other than that, we've just been, uh, you know, continue. I mean, we've done some, we've, we've did that kind of travel, which any flight with a, with a, uh, infant is a lot. Brutal uh, is what it is. Yeah. Brutal. Yeah. Uh, but he's doing pretty well. He's doing pretty well on the, uh, on the flights. But do you guys do little snack packs for the people sitting around you? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> we, did, we, don't. we did that at I mean, first. So it's Southwest. So it's choose your own seating and we go all the way to the back. Um, and we always sit where like his diaper bag is like in the middle seat and I'm on the aisle. So I'm, I'm thinking between like a large man like me and a baby, like nobody's going to want to sit on our aisle. And that has worked on every flight except for the one this weekend. So we were just, uh, we went to the Clemson A&M game and we're flying back yesterday. And the flight attendant put a guy who was bigger than me. In, in between you? Well, he pointed to the seat. He goes, uh, "Oh, this seat, this seat open is open right here. Why don't, why don't you go and sit here?" Because we were like trying to get going. Uh, the two the two aisles acro- or the the two rows on across the aisle from us also had open seats with much smaller people and no babies. But somehow they got open seats, and we were forced. So, so you so you sat in the middle. I sat in the middle. That's right. How long was the flight? An hour and a half. It was bad. Survivable. Yeah. Okay. So uh, <laughs> that's enough about the summer. Congress is back. Uh, Congress is back in in session. Uh, so that means that means a lot of things. Um, as we will uh, discuss probably more as the fall uh, as the fall continues on. Uh, it's an interesting time uh, in the life of uh, advocacy groups in D.C. Uh, for members on the Hill. Uh, you know, both on the House and the Senate side, because there isn't a ton of legislation that is likely to gain bipartisan support. Uh, and the reason for that is because there's an election coming and we're in the heat of uh, maybe the heat of the summer is over, but the heat of the presidential campaign is just beginning. And so there will be a lot of messaging bills, probably messaging hearings that are going to happen. But there's one piece of legislation that is must pass, and that is appropriations legislation. Um, so let's talk about fiscal year 2020 appropriations. How is ERLC engaging in that process? Yeah, so it's it's important to remember the both the House and the Senate passed a budget in July, and so that paves the way for a spending bill to actually get done. Uh, if you remember, uh, during the last couple of years, we have had uh, a government shutdown. In fact, the longest government shutdown in American history was you know, just less than a year ago. 
you know, so I, I don't think that there's any, I mean, it's, it is a must pass piece of legislation. I don't think that, that either party has an appetite for, uh, for another shutdown quite like that, but funding will run out at the end of this month, you know, and so kind of the, the big question that we're trying to get our arms around now that everybody's back and has had, and folks have had a chance to, to kind of get things lined up through, uh, through the summer and through August is, are we actually going to do a spending bill, you know, or, or is there going to be a continuing resolution or some kind of hybrid where you have an, an omnibus legislation that starts with fiscal year 19 numbers and adds a, a couple very small, uh, a couple of very small things to it to get the government funded for, you know, the next, you know, ideally probably for both parties through the end of the next election, you know, so the rest of this fiscal year and then uh, through the end of calendar year 2020 so that the next Congress can come and, and, you know, basically pick this up. But this is just yet another time that it's worth remembering. This is not how it should work. Uh, the appropriations committees have subcommittees that are supposed to pass 12 bills each individually that are supposed to move on their own uh, so that each area of the government has its own consideration, its own set of hearings that, you know, politics uh, doesn't, you know, dominate and drive you know, our country's spending priorities. But of course, that's that's not where we are. So, I mean, it's I, I, I mean, we, we will see what happens over the next couple of weeks, but I mean, I think where we're headed is another one of these big bills, whether it's a straight continuing resolution or some kind of modified. I, I think that's where we're headed. So I think they call those a cromnibus. All the names that we come up with to paper <laughs> over really bad processes. Um, and it's not that politics, you know, even if things were going according to uh, the design of this process, politics would still play a part in each of those different subcommittees and committees and the 12 bills that would that would come to the floor. But it's this idea of like this overwhelming nationalized or national politics that just overshadows and, and swamps everything that's happening. Yeah. That's well, just really, really unfortunate. Yeah. I, th- I think that's, you, you make a good point. It isn't exactly politics that is the problem here. I mean, so just take the labor, health and human services bill in and of itself. That's one of the biggest of the of the spending bills. It's massive. It deals with uh, the Department of Labor and the Department of Health and Human Services. HHS is a massive agency that's doing everything from uh, running Medicare and Medicaid all the way to uh, disease control, to medical research, all, I mean, it, it is, I mean, that Determining the spending priorities for that amount of government is itself a big work. You multiply that times roughly 12, you know, and a bill that large, you can't effectively negotiate on a granular level what's go- what's actually going on in those bills. And so everything sort of reduces to top line spending numbers and just a very few little things that each side, you know, decides we're going to prioritize fighting um, over, you know, trying to get this included or this excluded or this tweaked and, or that tweaked or whatever. Um, you know, but again, I mean, that this isn't how the process was designed. Um, mm-hmm. it, is, it is deeply broken. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chelsea, how is the ERLC uh, coming to the table uh, with these spending bills uh, this week and the weeks after until spending runs out at the end of the month? How are we engaged? So the House has already passed 10 of the 12 bills, um, which means they are now sitting in the uh, Senate's lap to um, be taken up. And um, we have delineated out some of the um, poison pills in um, the appropriations bills. So what does that mean, poison pill? 
So from where we're sitting, it would be the um, language that we would consider problematic. So um, there's a lot of pro-life concerns in there. There is also some um, SOGI, which is short for sexual orientation and gender identity language in there, particularly with foster care and Department of Labor, with some of the housing um, language. Um, so those are what we would call uh, poison pills. We've done a lot of work, again, on the pro-life front and on the sexual orientation and gender identity front with our work on the Equality Act and approaching that when it was brought up in the House. Um, but now we're seeing that um, this language is being brought up piecemeal through appropriations. Um, so we, we've outlined what those um, problematic um, pieces of language are, and then we're advocating on removing those so that um, we we feel comfortable um, with that with those appropriation spills. All right, so that's appropriations. Uh, they're going to pass one way or the other. Uh, Stephen, what what else are we what else are we looking to this fall? Well, related to that discussion, but distinct from it, there's an interesting piece of legislation that was added to the House passed NDAA bill, which is the National Defense Authorization Act. Has to be passed every year. How are we going to fund the military? But interestingly enough, a bill piece of legislation entitled the Fair Chance Act um, was um, added as an amendment by the House passed, and it's being considered now as something that perhaps will be conferenced in these kind of appropriations conversations. But because it's in the, it's in the military spending bill, I think it actually is going to have a, a, a more positive chance of getting its way through. And the Fair Chance Act is simply a kind of federal version of what many states have seen at the local state level called Ban the Box Initiative. It's really looking at individuals who have a criminal record, who have been, um, these are these are individuals who have felonies. Um, what kind of practices are put in place to make sure that that past is not haunting them each step of the mm. way after they've served their, their time in prison? And this particular bill has to do with federal jobs and contracted jobs. So it's not kind of all... It's it's not a, it's a, not a system wide. Yeah, it's not system wide, but it's looking at these particular kinds of jobs. And there's basically a, a delay of that criminal history inquiry, right? So you still these jobs still have a a a right to ask about an individual's criminal history, but it's simply delaying that request until that job is ready to offer me me actual employment, right? Um, it's giving them a chance in that system of employment to actually get further along rather than being kind of thrown to the side immediately because of this right. question. Right, because if, uh, if you have 50 applicants, yeah. 10 of them have felonies, you're not even going to grant an interview to those 10 people. Right. Whereas that if, if that person is able to interview and make the case for why they're a good candidate and put their past into a context, into their story in a way that um, – in a way that – you know, helps the employer to see, like, look, we can take a chance on this person, That's or right. this this is something that happened way. It's not even relevant to who they are today. They've they've learned from it. They paid their debt. They moved on. Yeah. So it's it's a it's a really I think helpful way to kind of you know the conversation has been oriented around what is the next step. We passed the first step back last year. This is a good next step. And so we've so we've uh, come out in support of it. Um, it's a bipartisan piece of legislation in both the House and the Senate, actually. And so hopefully this will get a a, a fair hearing because I think it is a, a really good good step forward. And and this is this is a federal uh, this is a federal version of something that's already been passing. At the yeah, state many level. states. I think only like thirty states oh, have wow. like ban the box initiatives uh, okay. underway. And so this is a this is a very relevant conversation for many communities. And so to see it take place at this level is really encouraging. Yeah, yeah and, it, and they and they have significant impacts, right? Yeah. I mean, they can. I mean, they boost. Uh, unemployment um, of ex-cons or people who have felonies in their background, and you know, I mean, 
significant ways. Yeah, that's great because if, I mean there has been so much conversation about okay, uh, what does re-entering society look like once you've paid your paid your debts? And this is a great uh, way for society to redeem and and help people re-enter mm-hmm. uh, because if you have a job and you can provide for yourself and your family, chances of recidivism uh, surely that's right uh, go down. So. That's great. Uh, what what else? What else is on our our docket as we're looking ahead to the fall and the uh, the issues and debates that we're going to engage with? Travis, I'll come to you. Well, we're we're continuing to keep a close eye on what's going on in China. We we were very active on human rights advocacy in China, and uh, during the recess in August, we had some high level meetings, um, and have have continued to push the idea that as the United States is countering China economically with trade militarily. Uh, within the international system that we need to be thinking about how are we countering China morally as well um, and trying to counteract the human rights narrative that they are are trying to that they're trying to tell basically that there there's nothing to see here with the million Uyghur Muslims that are currently in prison camps or re-education camps or whatever uh, language you want to use to describe these these horrific places in, in Western China. Uh, we've obviously also been watching the situation in Hong Kong uh, as, it, as it has been uh, developing as uh, as pro-democracy demonstrators have, been, have taken to the streets. I mean, I think at this point, almost a third of all Hong Kongers have participated in a uh, wow, in some kind of staggering. protest on the street. I mean, you sit and think about yeah, that. That is insane. Staggering number. Yeah, it is truly insane how um, how this has mobilized uh, the population of Hong Kong. So, you know, I, I think we, you know, we were we continue to have grave concerns about um, about what China's aspirations are regionally and, w- and what that impact um, it will have on the, you know, basically uh, Western liberalism in the international, in the international system um, and, you know, the extent to which uh, their, their agenda will erode uh, a consensus that is not that old. I mean, you think about, you know, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was passed in 1948. That was not that long ago. Um, you know, so the idea that, you know, this sort of international consensus about fundamental human rights is not something that that can change, can be eroded. I think we're naive to think that we don't need to, to stand up to this new threat, to those very ideas. That's... That's good. There was also uh, uh, one more update looking at uh, what's happened uh, with our engagement on China this summer, and I'm going to kick it back to you. Oh, that's right. I to forgot give to give that update, and and it's important. And I, you know, I d- don't mean to spike the football too much, but uh, <laughs> but no, it was a big. It was a big. Win no, it was, this a, it was a significant. So one one of the things that as as a part of the uh, as a part of the trade negotiations with China. Um, in June, it was announced that we were going to apply a tariff to an additional $300 billion uh, worth of products imported from China. And that included um, a number of educational and scientific materials, trade books, textbooks, uh, and so on, which, which just as a side note, are generally exempt from, from tariffs anywhere. I mean, the, it's you know, sort of driven by the principle that information and ideas should flow freely between societies. We don't erect trade barriers around those things. But included in, in, that, in that new tariff was Bibles, religious materials. So not just Bibles, but other sacred texts as well. And so we did some advocacy through really throughout the summer uh, to get Bibles and other religious texts extracted from the uh, from the tariffs, and ultimately we were successful in doing that. I mean, there were a lot of people working on. It. I mean, so you're you're right. We don't we don't want to, to spike the football. I mean, we worked very closely with 
the Evangelical Christian Publishers Association, the American Association of Publishers, and a, a number of other organizations were actively involved in this. But but we were glad to see that the administration pulled Bibles out of uh, that tariff program. Yeah, as as it uh, as it should be, and uh, for anybody who's interested in how that all developed, I'll link to our press release uh, when Bibles were uh, officially exempt uh, from the list of products uh, to receive a tariff. Chelsea, I want to come to you now. Uh, so this is a look ahead, but also uh, you just returned from a really from a really interesting trip. So tell us about that trip and how it's uh, going to affect the kinds of work that we're doing moving forward this fall. Yeah, so I had the opportunity to travel down to El Paso, Texas, and Juarez, Mexico with a group of um, Christian women uh, just to visit and to see what's going on down in that part of um, the country and to hear the stories of um, people from Central America that are um, fleeing Central America and um, what their journeys have been like. So we uh, visited many different places in El Paso, and then we actually walked across the border to Juarez and visited um, a shelter run by a church in Mexico and got to chat with people who um, had come from Guatemala and Honduras. Uh, We chatted with um, children as young as 12, all the way up to mothers and fathers who were um, leaving to make a better life for their families. So Lots to process, uh, but um, it ties into our work now in D.C. as we're watching um, what the refugee numbers will be as the administration um, will announce those numbers in the next coming days um, and just continued um, immigration, refugee, asylum work here on a policy front. That's great. That was a uh, it was it was fun uh, to be able to. I don't know if "fun's" the right word, but it was interesting to be able to uh, follow follow your your uh, your trip down there, mm-hmm. as well as uh, like Ann Voskamp, Jamie mm-hmm. Ivy, a um, couple different uh, people who I follow on on Instagram and social media, and, and seeing their pictures and and the stories. And it's so important that in these big national debates. Uh, that we remember to continue to hear personal stories of the people mm-hmm. that are affected mm-hmm. by the kinds mm-hmm. of policies uh, that our government, that other governments have. Um, you know, it's 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 very easy just to think about that in the numbers aspect or in the big, you know, as we were talking about earlier, how appropriations it just becomes this big nationalized debate and we forget about the individuals that are impacted mm-hmm. by our policies. Absolutely. So I was uh, thrilled that y'all were able to be there and, and be at the board in here firsthand. Yeah, yeah. And it was so... I mean, personally impactful just to remember that, you know, we talk about immigrants and each one of them has a face and a story and a background Mm -hmm, and hopes and dreams and a family. And I think that really, really stuck with me as I as we engage on a policy front that. Uh, policy always affects people. Right, um, right. And- it's it's sort of like how during the State Department's ministerial, when you actually hear from people who have who have uh, fled ISIS mm-hmm. uh, territories now, mm-hmm. um, that puts a whole nother uh, context and and color to uh, refugee crises. Uh, and I'm sure you experienced some of the same to some of the people that you mm-hmm. spoke with on the uh, Mexican side of the border who had fled some horrific things, trying to seek asylum in our country. So. That's really important. Uh, Well, thank you all so much for uh, gathering around the table. I'm glad to be back uh, from, it's always kind of a bittersweet time because I really (laughs) enjoyed August recess, really enjoyed the summer, but I'm glad that... uh, that we are are back. Uh, travels are beginning again with with Stephen and, and school. Travis, I know you're about to be in Nashville for our board of trustees, and then you yourself will be going to the border. That's right. Uh, and then we will be in in Dallas for our national conference, which you will be hearing more about on this podcast and all of our ERLC podcasts uh, in the coming weeks.
weeks. Uh, and for this episode this week, I would like to uh, end uh, with with replaying a uh, a really important conversation uh, that Chelsea, you and I had uh, with a woman named Melissa Odin, who Melissa uh, has a fascinating story because uh, on Melissa's birthday, uh, she actually uh, came into the world as a result of surviving an abortion on her on her life. Uh, she uh, was born alive after a failed abortion. And we had Melissa on our podcast back when uh, the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act was being introduced and discussed and voted on. That bill has now been is, is now been introduced in the House uh, by members of the Republican Party who are in the minority uh, over at the House, and it has not gone anywhere. And uh, so, Whips, Glees, uh, Representatives Wagner and Smith will be holding a a hearing on the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act this week, uh, where they're going to be talking about this bill. Uh, and and really, from our perspective, what an absolute shame it is that this bill has not yet been uh, voted upon in the House. Uh, and and really, just crazy uh, that a bill protecting infants who have been born alive after a failed abortion uh, are not guaranteed. Uh, medical care that they deserve as as human beings made in God's image. Um, so our conversation with Melissa was just, you know, speaking of personal stories to these big national uh, debates and issues, uh, Melissa's is just that, as somebody who uh, literally survived an abortion. And she is just an incredible, incredible woman of faith and an advocate uh, for this this really important debate uh, that's unfolding. Uh, so to close out this episode, I want to bring you our conversation with Melissa Odin. Melissa, I first learned about your story um, when you testified before the House Judiciary Committee um, several years ago. I was working on the Hill at the time, and my boss was on the Judiciary Committee, and we had the pleasure of hearing um, your powerful story and your powerful testimony. I think you're incredibly well-spoken, and I'm grateful for your courage and sharing your story so boldly. I'm sure it's not always easy, but the world needs to hear from you. Um, So we're just incredibly grateful that you um, are joining us. So adoption is a large part of your story, um, and you grew up knowing you were adopted, but when you were a teenager, you learned something a little bit more about your story. Can you share um, a little bit more of your upbringing and um, what you learned as a teenager? Absolutely. Yeah, I grew up knowing I was adopted. That was just the fabric of my family, my parents actually struggled with infertility for over 15 years. Mm. They had been foster parents and they adopted my older sister from another family in the midst of that infertility. And then they adopted me. And then, you know, because God, God orchestrates things the way he does, after 15 years of infertility, my little brother came along biologically. <laughs> I'm sure that was a fun surprise for all involved. <laughs> It really was like, you know, we have a lot of jokes about adoption in our family, as many people do. And uh, my brother would probably be the first one to tell you when we were growing up, we'd always say to him, you know, uh, they chose us. They just had you. Right. I know that's not an okay joke in certain places, but I feel like I can trust you guys with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. So that's what I knew growing up. Right. I was adopted. I was so deeply loved. I was chosen by my parents. 
And, um, and that really was the fabric of my family. But mm. Chelsea, you know, as you said, I was actually 14 years old when the story about my survival of a failed abortion came to light. Mm. And, you know, I think a lot of times people ask me, well, you know, didn't you ever really suspect there was something like this in your life? And, uh, wow. you know, I can say no. Uh-huh. You know, yeah, how could you? Back- yeah, right. Nobody would ever guess. And, and, you know, back then, I didn't know that abortions could fail and children could live. And so that news was absolutely devastating. Hmm. So, Melissa, I, I would guess it's safe to say that most of our most of our listeners and just most people in general have probably never heard the story of an abortion survivor or, or let alone having met somebody who that's that's part of their story. So if we could, I'd, I'd love to go back to to the beginning of your story. Uh, you were born in Iowa. Is that correct? That's correct. OK. And, and tell us a little bit more about the situation regarding your birth. Yeah, it's really interesting because the more I live this life and live it in obedience, the more God unfolds the storyline. So what I know is that 41 years ago, I'm 41, it's okay, Mm. Um, 41 (laughs) years ago, sometimes people are like, whoa, Um, it was 41 years ago that my biological mother as a 19-year-old college student actually had a saline infusion abortion forced upon her by her own mother, Mm. my maternal grandmother. And I think those dynamics are really important to talk about because we hear it talked about as a choice and a right, but if people educate themselves about abortion, what they're going to find is that there is very little choice for most women when it comes to abortion. You know, the Elliott Institute actually reports that 64% of women identify feeling pressured into their abortion decision. And and so my birth mother's circumstances are really not that unique in that respect. Um, what is unique is that my maternal grandmother was actually a prominent nurse in their community of, of Sioux City, Iowa. She worked very closely with the abortionist. And so that's how they literally forced this upon her against her will. They bypassed regulations, procedures at the hospital, you know, made people to believe that it was her choice. Um, when in fact, my birth mother had no intention of having that abortion. Hmm. Wow. And and how how far along uh, were you in development uh, when when that happened? The abortionist had written on the medical records. He estimated my birth mother to be between eighteen and twenty weeks pregnant with me. Okay. But the fact that I was able to live and I weighed right. almost three pounds makes it very clear that she was much further along. Yeah, and definitely. A neonatologist even remarked after I was delivered alive that he estimated me to be probably 31 weeks gestational age. Wow. Wow. Um, just as a as a side note here, my wife and I are expecting our first. Uh, she is at uh, just a little over 37 weeks right now. So mm-hmm. these conversations have to all of us around the table in, in their own unique ways, mm. uh, really, really personal. So so 31 weeks, the saline abortion procedure uh, is is moving forward. And what happened next? What what happened in, in the hospital where we were able to, to talk to you today? Yeah. So that type of procedure that I survived should have poisoned and scalded me to death in the womb. Usually the procedure lasted about 72 hours. My medical records actually reflect that I endured that procedure over a five-day period. 
Um, they did not successfully induce my birth mother's labor until the fifth day. And of course, they believed that I would be expelled from the womb as a successful abortion, a deceased child, but I was accidentally hmm. born alive. And, hmm. you know, I wish I could tell you guys that when I was delivered alive, that they were somehow rejoicing and saw the right. miracle of right. my life. But that's not how this usually happens. Uh, I now know that when I was delivered alive, there was disagreement about whether any medical care would be provided to me. My, my adoptive parents had been told years ago, we laid her aside. We laid her aside. And ultimately, some nurses intervened to save my life. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been taken even one step further because about two years ago now, I was actually contacted by a nurse who had read my book um, that I put out in 2017 about my life. And she had read my book and she said, you know, Melissa, I have been following you for years on social media. And I wondered if you were the baby that I remembered from St. Luke's Hospital. She said, after reading your book, I know that it's you. She was working in the neonatal intensive care unit that day. And she said, I'll never forget it. The door came flying open. This tall blonde nurse had you in her arms and she shouted out, I'll, I'll clean up the language a little bit. You'll be able to figure it out. But she, she shouted out, that darn Dr. Kelberg messed up. Oh my wow. God. That wow. was my abortionist. Hmm. And she went on and she said she just kept gasping for breath. She hmm. just kept gasping for breath. And so I couldn't just leave her there to die. It is just amazing, just as you're as you're sharing your story, how I just see the fingerprints of the Lord all over your story, from that nurse to your adoptive parents to you now sharing um, your story. And it is just, I'm sitting here in tears. It really does touch my heart quite a lot. Um, can you share, I, I can't even begin to imagine how you process that information. Can you share I mean, what was that like as a 14-year-old teenager? I mean, teenagers have it rough already, but to learn <laughs> learn that about your story and about people that brought you into this world, um, how did you begin to process that, that information? I didn't process it well, I'll be perfectly <laughs> honest. You know, that was one of those things over the years that I... I think I wanted to hide from, I mean, first I wanted to hide it from my parents and then I wanted to hide it from the world that, um, that I had suffered so much. I'm, I'm one of those people, I think that, um, never wants people to feel sorry for me. Right. Mm. I don't want anybody to ever pity me. I'm the one who takes care of other people. Right. That's just who I am. And so I tried to hide my, my pain and my suffering from other people. And, and even though, I put on that front for people, I was hurting myself. Mm. So, you know, developed an eating disorder, trying to control something in my life, you know, abused alcohol, trying to numb the range of emotions that I felt. Um, didn't want to be this person, right? At the age of 14, I just wanted to be like everybody else. And What any 14-year-old so would want. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? I just want to be like everybody else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so it was, it was just this really um, traumatic existence for me. I mean, I think what I appreciate the most is that um, the very thing that caused me so much pain initially is the one thing that has brought me so much purpose and so much mm. joy and is allowing me by the grace of God to hopefully 
um, impact this world. Mm. So, Melissa, when did your parents adopt you? I went home to my parents less than three months after I survived that failed abortion. Wow. So they first met me. I was still lying in a NICU. You know, the doctors were very guarded about my life. Um, they initially thought I had a fatal heart defect, um, but it was simply the amount of distress that my body was under. Yeah, sure, um, sure. I suffered from seizures, respiratory, liver problems. Uh, there were mistakes made in my care, so the doctors thought I was going to be blind. You know, that part of my story I share because we hear those arguments, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if these babies aren't aborted, who's going to adopt them? <laughs> Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, that's a really faulty argument. Um, and secondly, um, people just like my mom and dad mm-hmm. are going to mm-hmm. adopt people just like me. I love that. I love that. So you were actually able to make contact with your um, birth family. Could you share a little bit more about that? Yeah. You know, it. people are sometimes surprised by that, uh, that I went looking for them. But if people really get to know me, they realize it wasn't just for me to find answers, but it was also because I wanted them to be set free. You know, I didn't Mm. know all of these dynamics surrounding the abortion years ago, but I I did know in my heart that their lives had to have been impacted Mm -hmm. by that decision about my life. And so, yeah, started looking for them when I was about 19, started looking for my medical records at the same time. Um, ultimately found them and my medical records after about 10 years of searching in 2007. Wow. That's quite the process. Yeah. I'm, I'm a little bit of a, a, <laughs> a <laughs> perseverant person, I guess you could yeah, say. From, I mean, from the, from the very beginning, mm-hmm. from the very beginning, it was, <laughs> it was clear uh, the, the tenacity that God created you with uh, to, to search. So, so who all in your biological family have you made contact with? When I found my birth parents in 2007, I learned that I was living in the same city as my biological father. No oh my way. Goodness. Wow. Uh-huh. Uh, I had moved there during my years of searching to finish my master's degree in social work, knew that that's where my birth mother's abortion had taken place. But, you know, we know people can travel great distances to have abortions. And so uh, I reached out to my birth father, unfortunately never heard back from him, mm-hmm. and he ended up passing away. Uh, in early 2008. And uh, I only learned that because I I found his obituary online and really, you know, really grieved that, right? To search for him for so long, be in the same city. And then not Um, be able to make contact. Yeah, Yeah. I I really questioned God. Mm -hmm. And God spoke very plainly to me in my grief. He said, be patient, Melissa, Hmm. because my plan is much greater than the one you had in mind. And, you know, I got to see that plan unfold. When my birth father died, his family actually found my letter. Wow. And so my grandfather and my great aunt from my birth father's family have now been a part of our lives for about 11 years. Um, I did have some communication with my my maternal grandparents back in 2007, uh, but I didn't start having contact with my biological mother until... 2013. Um, that's when one of her cousins actually contacted me and shared really the biggest secrets that it had existed about my survival. And that was that my grandmother was responsible for so many things and that my birth mother had spent over 30 years of her life believing that I had died hmm. that day through the abortion procedure. 
Little did she know. Hmm. It really is. It's it really is quite remarkable. So we after we connected initially through that cousin, we spent about three years, you know, communicating by email and mail and finally met face to face for the first time almost three years ago now. And, you know, I know a lot of people want to know what that was like. (laughs) And, you know, it's almost indescribable to me. Um, You know, I guess I could tell you it's like one of those moments that, you know, is God ordained. Mm -hmm. And it's just so sacred that you are um, able to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. And so we met face to face about three years ago. And now she's a huge part of my life. When we moved to Kansas City six years ago, what we didn't know is that my birth mother lives here. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> you gotta wow. laugh about it, right? That's I mean I can wild. laugh about it now. Wow. My birth mother lives here and so does one of my half sisters. So my kids are growing up alongside my my birth mother. They know her as their grandma Ruth. They're raised with their cousins. You know, last night we were texting about the snowstorm and school <laughs> cancellations and only God, right? Only God could have done this. And I can imagine how healing that was for her to meet you and to know that um, you were still alive and how powerfully you've been able to use your story and how the Lord has used your story to um, to touch the lives of so many, um, but also to advocate. So switching gears just a little bit, when did you decide to go public with your story and um, turn your story into advocacy? Yeah, it was about 2007. I mean, Mm -hmm. I prayed some big prayers during those years of searching, right? And I'll never forget, like, in 2006, I was kind of at the end of myself, right, Mm -hmm. of just trying to figure out if God was calling me forward to share the story, and how was I going to do it? How would anybody ever believe this kind of story, right? Um, and, And then God answered those prayers, because you know, in one fell swoop in 2007, I obtained my medical records, find out who my biological parents were, and my medical records detail the abortion. Not many survivors have that. Hmm. Um, it's pretty rare. Um, and then, and God answered that prayer to give me that first opportunity to share my story. I first spoke on the Hill with Feminists for Life in 2007, and you know, I never really intended to live a life of public ministry. You know, I just kind of thought, oh, this is something I should do. Um, but I gave up my career as a social worker in about 2010 and jumped, you know, full in. And so now I, you know, do advocacy work. I work with survivors behind the scenes, helping them be supported. Um, I help pregnancy centers and other organizations raise funds. You know, this is this is now what I I do. And as ashamed as I was years ago of who I am, I am so grateful that God made me to be this very person. I love that. I love that. Well, like I said, I heard you testify a couple years ago and it really did um, touch me. And I know your story and your testimony has touched the lives of so many. So just to, again, lay the, the foundation before we get into our current moment, what's been happening. Can you just share where human dignity comes from and kind of lay that groundwork for helping our listeners understand where does our human dignity actually come from? Yeah. And that's, you know, I think that's why we have this mess in the world that we do, right? Because 
when we when we base the dignity of of human worth on on what we in the secular culture want to make it out to be, it's very subjective, right? From moment to moment and person to person. And I I truly believe that that kind of of subjective value makes everybody a target because anybody's vulnerable, right? The the it's it varies from moment to moment. And, you know, one bad experience and you could be the next target. And and I think we need to to embrace what we know to be true, that that we are all created in the image of God and God creates each and every one of us with intrinsic value. There's nothing we need to do to to earn that. Um, it's not when we take our first breath. It's not when we finally, you know, have this deep thought, right? Whatever people want to make it out to be, we are all born with that intrinsic value from the moment of conception, right? We're created with that. And, um, and that's why every abortion is a, a threat to that dignity and value, right? Sometimes people go, oh, late-term abortion, yeah, that's wrong. But maybe earlier on in the pregnancy, no, abortion always ends that human life that, that has that value. And so we have to not be afraid to say that, right? Be ashamed of it. And, and science confirms what we know to be true. That's so good. So good. Yeah, Melissa, I, you know, as, as Chelsea said earlier, have uh, just spent most of most of this conversation uh, really in awe of not only the providence of God in your story, but also uh, the courage that you've displayed and the courage that that your parents uh, displayed when when they showed up to uh, to meet their baby girl in in the NICU. And you're exactly right that this this kind of understanding, that understanding that that your parents displayed of where our human dignity comes from, their story, your family story, such a beautiful testimony to that, that that there they are in the NICU with all these potential really, really uh, serious complications. Uh, and they said, no, we're going to adopt her uh, into our family. And, and then, you know, to, to fast forward uh, the decades and, and to see uh, how how you're using the the story that God uniquely wrote for you um, is is so encouraging. So I, I appreciate that. And we've been touching on a lot of different theological motivations here, but surely that that was a rocky road for you to even fully come to that understanding of the Lord's providence in in your particular story. Uh, again, a lot of the people listening to this podcast are are pastors, church leaders, ministry leaders, men and women who are just trying to. F- to be faithful to the ministry that God has, has placed before them. So I was curious if you could just share a little bit about why you think being rooted in what God says about humanity is so important when dealing with these kinds of difficult issues and when ministering to people that are in these really difficult circumstances, whether it's the woman facing an unplanned pregnancy or pressure from her family about what to do with that pregnancy, or if it's to uh, survivors such as yourself or or people that are dealing with disabilities uh, from uh, an attempted abortion, why is being rooted in Scripture and in what the Lord says so important for this work? Well, not only is it truth, right, but it's also that very thing that anchors us, I truly believe, you know. I mean, every every single thing I encounter and I deal with, you know, and even when I hear you say, Jeff, you're so courageous, I'm sitting here thinking, I'm really not. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I'm just the most 
I'm seriously the most ordinary woman you will ever meet in your life. Um, but I have this unshakable faith and this steadfast obedience to God. And I will tell you, um, that's where my strength comes from. That's where my courage comes from. Um, and I want people to experience that same thing. And that's the only thing that is going to greatly impact people's lives to give them hope in the face of those difficult circumstances. It's that only, it's the only thing that's going to bring them healing. It is going to be the very thing that allows them to become the person that God has planned for them all along. That's great. So based on your incredible story, and, and I know you you continue to to dodge our our our, our compliments and comments there just, just to say it's it's ordinary, but but um but yeah, but based on based on your story, can can you speak to the importance of legal and so so now facing facing Washington, DC, the importance of legal protection for the vulnerable. What what is unique about the need to protect infants and the unborn? And this is where <laughs> the listeners get uncomfortable, right? Like, sure. uh, I think it's true, right? I think as the church, we get uncomfortable about having to get involved or have that conversation about the legislative side or the political side of things. Um, you know, we, we, I think, can embrace the fact that God is the creator of life and and how we serve him in, in helping people in need. But yeah, this this makes people uncomfortable. But I hope that people can hear my story and choose to to be emboldened by that. You know, I I want people to understand that right now we live in a culture and we have for, for many years now, unfortunately, that by and large does not embrace the dignity and value of every human life. You know, we know we live in a culture that is turned away from God's word. And so until we live in a society that embraces the intrinsic value of every human life, we need to have protections in place legislatively. And that's why what's happening across the nation is so important to pay attention to, whether it's New York, Virginia, New Mexico, Massachusetts, Mm. Uh, Rhode Island, Vermont, right? The list of states could go on and on. Um, all of these states are aggressively attacking the dignity and value of life by expanding abortion through the third trimester and by deleting those pieces in the code that would ensure that children like me are provided medical care. Um, and I think, you know, it's important that we identify that the more Democrats, and it is, by and large, it's Democrats right now. Unfortunately, it's become and continue to be partisan when it comes to life. But, you know, the more Democrats introduce this kind of legislation, expanding abortion through the third trimester, the greater the likelihood is going to be that children like me survive abortions. And so the more we really need the Infants Born Alive Protection Act, you know, people, I think, are a little bit confused by it. You know, I hear even members of Congress saying, well, this isn't necessary. We already have something like this. Well, I'm here to tell you, we don't really. Mm -hmm. You know, President Bush signed into law in 2002, the Born Alive Act, but it really had no teeth. You right. know, it, it was wasn't just a providing definition. any consequences. Right. Yeah. And so we need those consequences to exist. That if they provide, if they fail to provide children like me medical care, there needs to be a consequence for that because 
I want people to understand that I'm not really an anomaly. You know, mm-hmm. the anomaly mm-hmm. is that I'm alive to tell my story. Yeah. Right. Um, children like me still survive and they're not being provided medical care. Mm-hmm. So as you mentioned there at the end, we as an organization are advocating for Congress to pass the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. If anybody's been listening to this podcast over the last couple of weeks, that's that's been a theme and it will continue to be until we see it become law. Specifically, though, this this next Monday, uh, the United States Senate will vote on this bill, the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. So if you were standing in the Capitol and were able to speak with the senators before they walk on the floor to cast a vote on this particular bill, what would you tell them? Well, I have a couple of things. <laughs> you know, first I would say this is a human rights issue. Mm-hmm. This is not an attack on Roe versus Wade. This is not some political game that's being played. These are human beings' lives that are at stake. Um, and I'm here to as testament to that. And I guess the other point that I would say is, you know, as survivors of abortion, we have had to fight for our lives in the womb. Hmm. We should not have to fight for our lives again after we're born alive. That is so, so powerful. One last question as we wrap up. Adoption is actually part of my story. My birth mom was actually 19 as well when she did have me. And my parents adopted six children So I grew up very much like you, knowing I was adopted and adoption being very normal in our household. So I'm very passionate about it. Our um, boss at the ERLC, the ERLC's president, Dr. Moore, is very passionate about adoption as well. He wrote a book called Adopted for Life and has two boys adopted from um, Russia. So we are big um, into into the child welfare arena as well. Could you just, um, as we wrap up this conversation, could you just talk about why um, adoption is so important in these conversations of abortion and and born alive abortion survivors? Yeah, I actually am contacted by people frequently who will say, how can I adopt one of these babies, right? Um, And I appreciate their passion. and I can understand that passion. And, you know, I like to remind people that that no matter who you are in that adoption triad, adoption certainly impacts everyone's life, right? Whether you're the biological parent who places, you're the adoptive parent, you're the adoptee, you know, there is grief involved in mm-hmm. that, um, but there is healing and joy. And I would love for us to create a culture where adoption is talked about in a positive manner on a regular basis. And there are services and support that exist for every member of that adoption triad, because I feel like that's part of what we're missing, right? And no matter what um, people believe about adoption, I always like to remind people that it is the option that everybody can live with. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody can live with that decision. It is the child who gets to live in the face of abortion. Those biological parents can live with that decision that they made. Um, and of course, those adoptive parents too. So it really is a life-giving option. Mm-hmm. Melissa, that's so good. Thank you again for, for coming on Capital Conversations. And I want to point everybody to your book. You, you mentioned it earlier. It's a memoir titled, You Carried Me, A Daughter's Memoir. Where can people go uh, to, one, get that book and to, uh, to stay in, in touch with you and learn more about your story and, and read your writing? 
Yeah. So people can find it on Amazon or, um, you know, that little blurb wherever books are sold. I think that's how that goes. <laughs> they can also find it on my website, um, which is Melissa Odin, O-H-D-E-N.com. That's wonderful. We will link to uh, both your website and the Amazon page for your memoir in our show notes. Melissa, thank you again for joining us here on Capital Conversations and for all you are doing uh, for speaking up for the voiceless, giving voice to the voiceless uh, so that our, our laws would protect the vulnerable. We, we appreciate partnering with you in this endeavor. Thank you. God bless. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. Thanks to our production team, Gary Lancaster, Marie Delph, and Conrad Close for getting this episode published online. Resources from this conversation are available at ERLC.com, along with additional podcasts, videos, and articles to equip you and your church.